Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 45. In this episode, I talk with Indigo Young about anti-oppressive curricula and so much more. I spoke with Indigo in episode nine, but I wanted to revisit this important topic with updated content. This episode is a must listen as you start to plan your upcoming school year to make sure that your curricula is truly factual and reflecting accurately all children. After listening, don't forget to check out the website, www.seehearspeakpodcast.com, to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Welcome to episode 45 of See, Hear, Speak podcast. Today I have Indigo Young, and I'm excited to have her introduce herself. Hi, thanks for having me, Tiffany. My name is Indigo Young. I consider myself both a pediatric speech language pathologist and also an educator. So as a speech language pathologist, I'm a pediatric expert. Um, and as an educator, I primarily teach in graduate institutions for SLPs and training. Um, and I also like to do some diversity, equity, and inclusion kinds of consulting as part of my private practice. Fantastic. I'm really glad to have you here. We last spoke on a short episode nine for my leading literacy change course, and that was in the summer of 2019. So the world's a lot different now, uh, but some things haven't changed, and that is the need for anti-oppressive instruction. So can you tell us what that is? Sure. So anti-oppressive practice, whether it's applied in a classroom or in a clinical setting, it's an approach to addressing disparities in healthcare and education. So it focuses on inclusion, equity, and cultural humility via doing concrete action steps. And the way that I do anti-oppressive practice is I like to sort them into these, these approaches into two categories. So first, is the educator-focused category. So these are actions that include things like critical self-reflection, targeted learning, goal setting, a lot of sort of self-work and self-development, which is absolutely crucial to making a more equitable and inclusive learning environment or healthcare clinic. And then the other section is more client-focused or learner-focused. So these are things that when the students walk in the door, or if a, when the client walks into the treatment room, these are things that they can hear and see that are more tangible for the people that we're serving. And really to be striving towards anti-oppressive practice, we need to have both sides of those things. And I like to contrast anti-oppressive practice with the way that I was trained to be a clinician, which I think it was more of, I like to call it the asterisk model, where it was this idea that you do X, Y, and Z when you're interacting with the client. And if they happen to be a minority of any type or you know, not a native English speaker or whatever it might be, you sort of you know, put the asterisk next to it and then you see this side approach. And so the idea of anti-oppressive practice is that there's no asterisk model. We're treating individuals um, as full people connected to their culture and racial identities from the get-go. So it's also, I think, I hear you saying too that in the past, and this is how I feel like I was trained as well, there was almost a hierarchy that was placed. And if you didn't have the asterisk, somehow that was better, or that was our gold standard. 
Whereas if you have the asterisk, it wasn't, which is absolutely inappropriate. And that that's just taking, you know, buying into somehow um, thinking that, um, you know, that there's some type of majority that needs to be controlling, you know, or the, the uh, standard, I guess. So is that what you're thinking too? Is how does that play into, um, you know, that, that thinking and that training? So I think it really confronts it even more than I had intended it to when I started working on this type of curriculum. And it's, it's interesting where I come up against barriers or resistance sometimes. And one of those things is sometimes hearing the perspective that these talking about cultural factors or language proficiency factors is somehow a more advanced practice. So the idea that, well, no, first we need to teach our students these fundamental skills and these fundamental skills just happen to be what works for white, middle-class native English speakers who are native citizens to the U.S. And if we happen to need to talk about translators or culture broking or anything that has to do with the other, and I'm putting quotations around the other, then that's somehow a more advanced practice. And I think that that is definitely reinforcing this, this othering of non-white, non-native English speaking people. Um, and the thing that is really interesting is that, especially in healthcare and education, most folks aren't doing this on purpose. You know, it's never the intention. And that's really what helped me to discover anti-oppressive practices, seeing a lot of people who we're really trying to do good work, accidentally oppressing people because of lack of enough knowledge or skills as it relates to working in a diverse society. Mm. Yeah, because I think it's this, it goes back to that um, placing somehow a standard on a group of people that then seems that they're, you know, even just using the standard idea is just so oppressive in and of itself it's that you have to somehow meet the standard which is created by a certain group of people like you said like white middle class you know standard quote unquote and that verbiage is just so bad for instruction and for people telling people they have to meet us to be different than they are or the culture that they have and somehow that it's less than right And this idea of the standard and comparing to the standard is so embedded in education that it is hard to confront it. And I find that sometimes when I'm speaking to educators, there's a lot of resistance to this idea of letting go of the standard or digging deeper into who the standard is actually referring to. And and that's an area that I'm really interested in now is this idea of standard language and standard English and and whose language that really is and um, how that impacts us as speech language pathologists and as educators. So, and also just finding where the resistance points are for myself and for others when trying to unpack all of this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that your work is really leading the way to help to reveal some of those underlying, uh, underlying assumptions and unconscious biases that are there and really bringing them to the forefront and how they're affecting the children that we serve. Um, You know, last time we spoke, you you mentioned, I think on the angle of curriculum, you know, looking at the Washington model to evaluate bias in curricula. And based on that, you had mentioned six ways in which curricula and supporting materials like books can be biased. So I was hoping you could tell us about each of those six ways. And I don't know 
if you think about these six ways also from the, the educator point of view, uh, but I'd love to hear more about those, those ways. Absolutely. And these six forms of bias connects really well back to this idea of the standard versus the other, because when we're looking at these types of bias, what we're really looking for is, are the materials that we're using or the books that we're using centering a, a standard type of person um, and marginalizing others or not? So the, the six types, and I'll explain each a bit more, are invisibility, stereotyping, imbalance and selectivity, unreality, fragmentation and isolation, and then there's linguistic bias. So invisibility is the idea of simply leaving out groups of people. And this tends to focus on the more majoritized or dominant or powerful identities. So some there's lots of examples when we're looking at history books or history curriculum, where maybe we're only talking about men who discovered things or were adventurers, whatever it might be, and just completely leaving out women or, or other kinds of gendered people who might have also had important roles to play. So that's an example of invisibility, just simply leaving them out. Stereotyping is showing maybe different kinds of people, but only in really rigid, defined versions. So a really easy example is gender stereotyping. So maybe only showing men in classic masculine roles in careers like doctors and firefighters and showing women in roles like home makers or educators. And this could be the same for um, racial stereotypes or all sorts of different things too. Imbalance and selectivity starts to get a little bit more tricky to see because it may include some of the more minoritized groups of people, but not in a way that's fair or honest or shows multiple perspectives. So an example of this might be talking about the history of education and maybe learning about standardized assessments um, and leaving out the history of it being based in eugenics and trying to prove some biological racial superior, superiority um, and maybe not including information about the people who have fought against that along the way. When we look at, so I'm thinking about that more as like an adult education and if we're talking about children, um, when I talk about this for children, I usually have a picture of a children's book about Christopher Columbus as a hero. And so that is imbalance and selectivity because they're only showing the perspective of Christopher, Christopher Columbus and maybe pilgrims and not the indigenous people who were harmed in, in all of that history. Unreality is a form of bias where, again, there might be some historical facts that are that are somewhat true, or there might be some social situations having to do with power and identity, but it's as if you're looking at them with rose-colored glasses. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of skimming over any parts that were hard or more nuanced. Some examples can be talking about, because we're recording this in June, which is Pride Month, so talking about gay pride history and, um, talking about like the first parade and leaving out the fact that in actuality, 
pride happened because queer people were being assaulted by police officers at a club and it was actually a riot and people were arrested, people got hurt. And so, you know, sort of just smoothing over the details, which really robs people of getting the full nuance of things and really understanding the world and history. Absolutely. The next. I was just thinking about that. Just even the word parade is, you know, in terms of riot, just that seems right there. The, the word choice alone is just exactly, it seems like it really highlights exactly what you're, what you're saying. Right, right. Yeah. So purposely using those other words. There's another good example that I saw in a fluency workbook that, mm-hmm. that we have in our, um, in our in-person clinic. Um, and it, there's a chapter talking about cotton and it specifically uses a phrase like workers talking about who was collecting the cotton and the time period they're talking about is clearly during slavery and it's enslaved people who are the quote workers, but word choices like that, where maybe sure there's some factual information that there were people who were working on the farms, but when you use the word workers rather than enslaved individuals, we're completely skimming over the actual reality of the situation, you know, hence the label unreality. Yes. I like how you said the rosy colored glasses, or it's almost like, um, yeah, sugar coating, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that's at the best. I mean, it's really, it's really just in factual, you know, misrepresentation, you know, mm-hmm. and it's hard. I, I feel like a lot of my learning growing up was based in this sort of unreality version of it. And then I have peers that I went to school with who are not totally understanding some current social circumstances. And I think it's because without understanding the history and the nuances, it's hard to see how those things are continuing to play out just in different ways in in modern day life. Absolutely. Yeah. And it almost seems like it's putting it in what used to be thought as child-friendly, which is completely wrong because it's not child-friendly to misrepresent but it's almost like, no, children can handle the truth. They can handle what happened and they need to be told what happened. Of course, in a way that's developmentally appropriate, but it yeah. needs to be told in the way that is factually correct. Right. And they deserve to know so that they can start to develop, you know, critical thinking and compassionate thinking and be people who care about making the world better. You know, they have to, it's, yeah, they deserve to have the information that they need to become those people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another form of bias that you can find in instructional materials is called fragmentation and isolation. This is another one that's kind of sneaky because they might show a variety of kinds of people, but it's really focused on the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And then anything that happens to do with like the other is maybe like a bonus or like a special section. Um, So a really extreme example of this might be something like in a music curriculum in a school where all year long children are learning about European musicians and composers. And then maybe there's like a week (laughs) in the school year that's like multicultural music or world's music. And so, you know, 
mm-hmm. institutions are able to say like, yeah, we talked about other types of people, but the very fact that it's only in this one week shows that, you know, this isn't like the normal or regular, this is like special or extra and different or other in some way. Um, mm-hmm. And this could happen with a lot of things like, I'm a big fan of Black History Month, but if we're only talking about Black history during that one month, that it, that's an example of fragmentation and isolation where Black history should be interwoven throughout the year, throughout different subjects. And then I, the last one- said that, Indigo, I just want to interrupt real quick because I also have the, um, I have the mixed feelings about Black History Month because I feel like, you know, like you said, it's a month that deserves recognition, but if it's only during that month, then that doesn't, you know, doesn't really play out as you'd like it to be. It needs to be woven into the fabric of our discussions, not just one month. And recently, um, I know you were involved a bit with this too, uh, really integral to it is when we did our implementation science conference, we had a big debate about whether we should have diversity as one of the outcomes. And I really felt that it shouldn't have to be its own outcome. It should be included in every single outcome automatically. But I was convinced that it was appropriate to have it as an outcome because we're not there yet, unfortunately. And so I I wonder if there will be a time. I'm not saying we should ever get rid of Black History Month, but I do feel like it needs to be part of the, the culture all year. And then that month is a special highlight, maybe, or, you know, in that way. I mean, I feel that way with Pride Month as well. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it, this is really interesting to think about, you know, the benefits, but also what could be the downfall of it as well. Yeah, it's it's a stepping stone. You know, Black History Month came out of an organized effort because Black history wasn't being discussed in a meaningful way or celebrated in a meaningful way. So this was a way to make that start to happen. But we're doing any of this work. There's no resting or end point. So it's not enough to say like, we've got Black History Month. We did all these events for Black History Month. It needs to keep going. Same with Pride Month and Women's History Month and all the other points of celebration that that are steps towards uplifting and normalizing these other, the contributions of other types of people. Yeah, that makes sense. Sorry, I interrupted you for the next one. So. Oh, no, that's okay. That's okay. I wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, I get really excited. So you can interrupt me anytime. But the last form of bias that the Washington Models talks about is linguistic bias. And the way that this one was intended to be interpreted, I think has to do with, with things like gendered bias in, in writing, um, maybe outdated terms for groups of people. And it's, it's interesting because this one, you can sort of look at the time period something was published and that, that might help a little bit. And, um, you know, things that were, like children's books that were written before, like in the, before the sixties probably don't have a lot of marginalized characters or black characters that are talked about in meaningful ways. And before like the two thousands or, you know, early two thousands, there there wasn't a lot of literature about or including queer people or, you know, different kinds of genders or, or people with different kinds of abilities or disabilities talked about in a meaningful way. Um, and this is not like an end-all be-all. There's plenty of fine things that were written, you know, decades ago and not great things that were written recently, but that is sort of a thing to, to keep in mind that if you want to use 
and you know a classic book <laughs> that you might have to be discriminating discriminating and looking at these types of what kind of language they're using and i find that this one can sometimes be a resistance point for some folks um because you know there are outdated terms that a lot of people are like oh yes of course i'm totally fine with not using that kind of language in this, those are clearly slurs. Um, and then on the other side, sometimes I hear folks saying like, well, language changes all the time. It was totally fine to say that, you know, five years ago, like how am I supposed to keep on top of things? And um, I found that there are there are resources. I, the, the APA guide often releases sort of like updated language guides about how to talk about different groups of people. and. I think that it's kind of exciting that we're in this super information heavy world where we get to keep learning about these things. And I don't pretend to know the preferred identity markers and language of every group of people ever. And that's not the point. The point is to know enough to like look it up if you need to. Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes sense. Or ask, just blatantly. Or ask. Yeah, prefer, you know, but definitely looking up first, I think makes good sense. But if you don't know or are struggling, it seems like asking could be okay. I like how we're in this mode where the stakeholders are really taking hold. Um, you know, for instance, with autism, you know, that group saying like, you know, I want to be called autistic person. And then I always am surprised if someone's pushing back because I'm like, that's coming from them. They're, that's their decision to choose mm -hmm. what to be called and we should respect that. But it is, um, you know, I think you're right. There's a lot of changes happening. It means we have to be aware at all times. So you have given us these examples and I know since 2019, you've done tons of training around these examples with graduate students and with educators. Can you tell us some of the things you've run into or just some examples of some of the trainings you've done and some of the outcomes and examples from those trainings? Sure. One thing that I do a lot is a hands-on bias review. So I tend to just grab things at random. Right now I'm part of a, a graduate on-site clinic. We see clients for language and literacy. So we have a lot of both donated materials and you know purchased materials. And there's a whole random assortment of things to look at. So I often go to our clinic and just grab things at random. You know, I'll grab some picture books, I'll grab some decodable text, some flashcards and games. And then I'll go through a training with folks where we talk about the different kinds of bias. And then I have them go through and, and you know, look at cards, flashcards, and thumb through books and see what they notice. Mm. Um, Sometimes I'll do an activity where I ask why I won't, it's with teachers, generally like elementary school and middle school teachers. And I, I won't tell them ahead of time what my game plan is. I just ask them to bring a book that they like to use. And then I have them use this strategy of going through and, and looking for bias with, with a favorite book. And um, that one's always interesting because sometimes people are really ready to see some problems mm -hmm. and sometimes they're, they're not. There's still a lot of, I don't know, connection to or buy-in and therefore resistance to that, to that particular material. Yes. Something that I found really interesting is that I was at a conference for um, people of color in education and, and speech language pathology. Mm -hmm. And I did a, a similar workshop and I 
there were some tables where people were really willing to see some kinds of bias, but were really resistant to seeing things like maybe gendered bias. Mm. And so it's just, it's just interesting to see, I don't know, like even regionally where I'm presenting and maybe what people's previous exposures are, just what the comfort zone is versus where the resistance zone is. And it's, it's not always the same for every group of trainees. Mm. That's interesting. I imagine that that um, you hit on it, that emotional connection that they may have to a book or the material may then almost blind them to the bias that is in that material because it might be hard to accept that this material that you have so, or a book that you have so much connection to yourself might um, feel, be biased. Or maybe even if I imagine, have you had a case where books are used to you know, create, um, or, or an educator might think, I'm using this book to create a, a warm environment, an inclusive environment, and then you point out that it might not be as inclusive as thought to be, and that would be hard to hear, I think. Absolutely. Everybody's doing their best, you know, and they're trying to do good things, and there is a lot of fear in especially if we start talking about oppression and racism, you know, there's a lot of fear because people don't want to be seen as oppressors or racists and which is completely fair. But noticing where those resistance spots are and leaning in, I think is just really important. And sometimes people can be a little black and white in their thinking where they're like, well, then just tell me the good books. Like if I can't use this book, just tell me the good books and I'll just do those books. And my counter to that is always like, you know, things are going to change. Maybe this book is good now and it's not going to be good in 10 years. My goal here is for us to all just be a little more like critical and discerning. And we don't need to throw away every bad book, you know, if they're egregious. I always like to ask folks, like, if you were a child looking at this book and it was about people like you, (laughs) would it make you feel normal and good and beautiful or or would it make you feel ashamed or bad about yourself so we don't we don't want that but if there's something that's really valuable in an imperfect book we can teach kids how to be critical themselves we can teach kids how to ask you know who's in this book who's missing from this book because the world's not a perfect place either we can't just curate perfect instructional materials at all times for our kids, because we're going back to that sort of unreality idea. We also get to equip our students to be critical thinkers too, and, and to look for fairness and inclusion. And yeah, that's really the next level, wouldn't it be? So it would be to uh, you as an educator, understand uh, your points of learning, lean in, understand how your curricula are um, representing the world. And then next level would be to teach the children that you teach to also take an anti-oppressive lens uh, for the materials that they are encountering. I'm sure developmentally wise, you know, that might be a little older, but I think even younger understanding how a material might make you feel could be a one step, correct? Yeah. And I've seen elementary school teachers doing really neat things with giving kids a framework of just asking, you know, who's here and who's missing. And, you know, you can break things down a number of different ways to make it more accessible to, to kids, but they're, they're capable of asking those sorts of questions and trying to answer them. Absolutely. And then with the Washington model and and the 
the exercise you just mentioned that you do with educators and graduate students, are there resources online if someone, if a listener would like to go and learn more and, you know, apply what they're learning to their own material and to their own biases? The Washington models are available. They've, they've published this and that's what, you know, I used initially. The idea about language changing is such that we've updated it a bit ourselves for what we're looking for, but it's it's absolutely, you know, you can find that online. And if you're in the stage where you know that you need to maybe replace some of your previous materials, there's a lot of resources like hashtag own voices where you're finding stories written about groups of people from written by that same group of people too. Um, and I think this is such a neat time to be an educator because the multicultural content is so much more readily available. I was talking with uh, some friends recently because I was in Target and I have a brand new niece who's three months old and I was lost in the baby aisle looking at things and they had these soft infant-friendly baby dolls and they came in like five colors, like all these brown shades where when my nephew was born just two years previously, I had to go on Etsy to find like black baby dolls. And just after a couple of years are just available, just in target. It's just amazing. Just that idea of, of representation being more accessible. So I, I think similar things are happening within instructional materials and books, and it's a better time than ever to be able to find toys and classic materials that that show a range of different types of people. I agree. It seems like there's a lot, even from, you know, having a 16 year old to a, you know, a seven now five-year-old, it really is a difference in what is out there and available readily. Um, we had my uh, book nook uh, um, curator, Lakeisha Johnson on, and she talked about uh, you know, uh, her journey with Maya's book nook. And so, mm-hmm. you know, just having those resources alone. Um, and I can't remember the year she started, but it was pretty recent, relatively recent to me. <laughs> so I think that, um, having those resources is so helpful. Any other ones that you think, cause I know I've mentioned the Washington model, but like you said, it's not the only thing. I just want to make sure for our listeners that I provide resources that they can, you know, continue to learn after, after our discussion. Another good page to look at is uh, The Conscious Kid, where they also have book recommendations, but they also, there's also resources to dig deeper into some of these inclusion and equity ideas as they relate to educating children. So that's another good place. They've got a good social media presence too. I know that sometimes that's a nice way to learn is to following experts in the field and, and getting to learn from them that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Then you have the continuous learning, you know, and, and, and almost incidental too, <laughs> that you're just yeah. going through, you can and learn along right. the way like that just as well. Exposing yourself just <laughs> all yeah, the time. Totally. Uh, before I, for, uh, before I miss it, I want to make sure I cover too, that you were an author on a recent paper um, through our Institute, and it's called Introducing the Language of Anti-Racism During Graduate School Orientation. And I would love to hear more about that work as well. Sure. Yeah, I got to work on that paper with some of the leadership in IHP and in our in our Jedi office. And we were talking about our orientation program, which is called Power, Privilege, and Positionality. And it was really, it was really neat to work on because I got to dig into the literature about orientations 
in general to school um, and how they are a way to communicate the values of an institution. And when you are at a professional school, it's also a way to communicate the values of the profession. So it just, how important is it then, you know, to communicate that not only as somebody at who's attending school here, but as somebody who's going to join healthcare, this is what it means to be a student here. This is what it means to be a healthcare practitioner. It means you need to think about, about race and oppression and, and equity. And that that's just a fundamental part of what it means to be here and in this field. Um, so yeah, we got in that article, we talk about what it's looked like here, how we've done it over eight times, that something like 1300 students have gone through this orientation. And it's this idea that we're talking about race at the very beginning of the program. And it's hard to talk about race. And there's lots of, there's lots of research that shows that, you know, it makes people really uncomfortable, um, but also that modeling how to engage in these conversations, normalizing engaging in these conversations is really important for people from more majority racial backgrounds, but also for people of color and or more minoritized cultural backgrounds. It's important to, to see that too, because it shows that, you know, this is important, your safety, these ideas of equity, it's important. And it's another way to sort of counter this exclusion of, of people of color within higher ed and, and healthcare too. So the article is talking a bit about that sort of like historical background, cultural background, and also just describing what it looks like in the Institute, which includes some preparatory work. So there's lots of really cool readings and, and videos and um, some discussion that happens beforehand. And then there's a, a, a live section that includes um, panel discussions, sometimes experts coming, not sometimes, always experts coming in. It just sort of changes from year to year who those people might be and what the focus might be. And then afterwards, there's facilitated dialogue. And so again, this idea of, of facilitating conversations about race, modeling how to engage in conversations like race and beginning to normalize that as like an inherent part of, of your journey as becoming a healthcare practitioner. Um, and then a little bit of just data that we have about how participants respond and, you know, just very strong, positive um, reactions from, from the participants. It's a great article. I'll definitely put it in the resources. And I, I, you know, personally having gone through it, it's the normalizing of the conversations and creating a shared vocabulary uh, is just so important. And I think um, I appreciate even, at, you know, as a lab director, being able to send everyone who works in my lab. So it just is, isn't just the students, but the staff as well at all different levels. It's such an awesome opportunity to have them participate. And then that carries over into the lab as well. And it seems like to me, it's, it goes back to what you said initially. It's not that it's a side note, an asterisk or an other, taking that training, you see right up front from day one that it's the backbone. It is what it is. It's the main focus. And exactly. it should be. And I think that's that's so powerful uh, to have right up front. So I was excited that you wrote about it with um, those in the Jedi office and, and others in the Institute, because 
um, then other, you know, institutes might be able to, and other universities might be able to, you know, connect and make those same. I know a lot of people are doing it, but to just learn from what's been done here. And um, we have a lot to learn as well from others, but to have that shared dialogue across institutions and uh, universities, it, it was exciting to see that that was out because it was pretty recent, right? Yes, yes, it's pretty recent. Very recent, yeah. So I was really glad um, that you did that. That was, you know, publishing is, is so hard within all the things we're doing. Um, <laughs> and so I was really excited to see you did that. So what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Because you have so many things going on. What, what are you most excited about right now? So I have been really leaning into more about linguistic racism and linguistic bias. And I just, yeah, it, it's fascinating to me where we, you, you know, what is considered good language, how good language is taught and reinforced, the underlying racial and cultural norms behind that. And then how that, how that interacts with the field of communication sciences and disorders. So, um, I've got some cool things in the pipeline <laughs> about that, including a, an ASHA presentation this upcoming year and um, thinking of ways that I can weave some more of that idea and into the curriculum that I teach and, and the students that I help to train. So that's like, that is an area, I guess it's not a specific project. It's just an area of interest that I, I'm really excited about. And again, it's not something that I learned about at any point in my training. And it just goes to show how much, how undiverse the, the standards are within speech language pathology, that it's not even questioned what, it, what good language means. We learn a lot about difference versus disorder, but it's not, it's not really tackled in a, with a, a, a critical lens, I, I don't think. So there's just so much to learn and so much to share with folks about it. So yeah, that's, that's very really leaning into. And also this idea of resistance that, that keeps coming up because I'm always curious about how I can do better at, at teaching people some of this information and resistance can sometimes be a barrier. So this idea of looking at, you know, what, is, what does resistance mean? What does it look like? Because it's not always a cognitive, like <laughs> frontal lobe thought where it's like, I don't like this, I'm not gonna listen anymore. But it tends to be more of like a feeling and that feeling might be different for other people. So there's this really cool um, image that this therapist, Lindsay Brahman, made called, it's an emotion sensation wheel. Mm. So on the outside, it has things like short of breath or like, I don't know, tension in the jaw or like increased heart rate. There's a lot of different things. And then, you know, the inner circles start to show what emotions are connected to that. So this first step of just being like, okay, something is happening in my body. I'm disconnecting somehow, or like there's this physical sensation that's happening. So noticing that, getting curious about it, and then taking note about what triggered that, because that's probably a learning zone. Mm. And again, it's not like I'm some expert in all the ways about these things that I never feel this way. So it's applied to me too. And I find that when I come across an idea that I have resistance to, I tend to 
disconnects cognitively. Like maybe I stop participating. Um, maybe I get really distracted thinking about something else in my mind, but like that underlying feeling is a place of like denial or anger. And then I need to take note of what triggered that so I can lean into that more. So I'm really interested in, in these emotional responses to learning challenging things and how to embrace it in myself and how to help others embrace it too. Such good sense. And to go, we've been, I've been thinking about this as a parent, but I also think about it in myself too. So I notice when I'm in a meeting, let's say, and something comes up, I, I love what you said about this kind of physiological response. For me, I'll notice if something, you know, I can feel like almost like a heat, right? It's like an embarrassment maybe, or, mm. and I can almost just feel myself becoming more defensive. And so, um, uh, within my family, we say something like put the helmet on, like the defensive helmet off, like take the helmet off because it's like, almost like you feel like you're just putting on a defense, like almost like you're just armoring up somehow Mm -hmm. and you can just feel it physically, like you said. And so we say, take the helmet off, but it's like, put on your helmet and then you start to, and I feel this way when I say you, I mean me, but like anyone, Mm -hmm. human, you start to then immediately, like you said, you start going off on the defensive train of thought to defend your view. So then it's like, you don't, you're spending so much time defending your view. You don't have time to listen to anyone else. Right. So we've been in my family, we think a lot about like, okay, if that's the way you're feeling, then it really is a feeling. It's like your amygdala has activated. And Mm -hmm. so then we're like, if you can take some breaths and step back and recognize that feeling, you can activate your frontal lobe to get curious or um, think about it more cognitively somehow, you know? So it's like, like basically listen, become a learner, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of being defensive and getting emotional, acknowledge those emotions, but then try to take some breaths, recognize, and then start to think about how to learn from it. And I, I use this all the time now. I didn't realize how, I mean, it was, came from teaching my children, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And then then it became like, oh, I'm teaching this. Maybe I should do it too. Recognize (laughs) it in myself, mainly in scientific discussions. If I have a really strong view about something and then I, someone will say a different view and I immediately feel like this feeling like this heat, this like Mm -hmm. defensive feeling. The second I feel that I then start to realize like, oh, okay, this is, I need to learn, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like for me, it's almost like I need to sleep on it. The, the few breaths doesn't work. <laughs> That's not going to work. In the moment. But if I sleep on it, put it down. Like if I'm reading something, I'm like, oh, I just don't agree with that. Put it down, read it later. So that's so cool that you're really thinking about studying that process because you're right. I think that's like such a entry point to changing, um, people changing or people acknowledging or growing is almost getting past that initial defense. Right. And something that might've put somebody on the defense a few years ago, you know, maybe they've moved beyond that, but there might be something new, (laughs) you know? So this is this idea of like continual change. And I just love that you said, you know, maybe some deep breaths can, is enough to get you 
out of your dinosaur brain and into your frontal lobe, but maybe not. And that's why when I've been teaching recently, I've been asking people to keep track of their pains and their gains. Mm -hmm. So if they hear something, they're like, aha, this really resounds. Like I'm excited by this idea. It goes in the gains category. And if they hear something that gives them any sort of those, that emotional, that heat, that resistance to just maybe just write it down because yeah, maybe you can't lean into it in the moment and you can't get curious in the moment, but it's a good sign that it's something that you might need to circle back to and then get really curious about and investigate further, perhaps. I almost wonder too, for myself, um, use of the pains and gains, almost like the gains could also be when the pain turned again. Cause that's really, I try to remind myself of those moments where I see something and then I think, Oh, wait, what is that? I will tell you a very clear example is that, you know, I've been worked, I've worked a lot with advocacy for developmental language disorder. Then there's been some pushback in terms of just labeling a child. And at first I was kind of like, what labeling is so good. I mean, I've always thought about labeling in terms of pros and cons, but I was thinking labeling isn't oppressive. How is that oppressive? That's helping. That's helping. Then I was like, okay, wait, hold on. Step back. First off, you're saying helping way too much. Hmm. that's enabling to there has to be something to this there, you know, obviously that this, and then I was able to look deeper and really listen to that argument. Then I was able to say, oh yeah, that's right. It, it can be very oppressive. Where's this coming from? You know, where, where is this, the whole enabling oppression, where's this coming from and how then can advocacy for the children that I serve change for the better? But I have to tell you at first, I was very, I felt very defensive. I felt very, I felt that heat, you know, and I was just like, oh, I don't know that that's really uncomfortable. And I just, and, but then I reminded myself of how in the past I felt this way and it always improved my thinking. So I think that could be also almost like a next step to pain and gain. It's like, if you feel the pain later, you will. (laughs) Yeah. The pain's if you lean in, will inevitably lead to a gain. Yes, <laughs> you exactly. put in the, the, yeah, the inquiry and the, the work to figure it out. Yeah, totally. So that, that's just really fantastic. Very meta, I think. And that's where we have to go, you know, and mm-hmm. also back to the, the other aspects that you mentioned uh, that you were excited about the projects, thinking about linguistics and, and language that is so needed. I'm so glad you're leading the way. Cause that is, we have to move forward. I've been thinking a lot about even just code switching. What does that mean? Like, mm-hmm. why would that be needed? You know, I mean, what is that? What's behind that need? And right. why who's code switching for yeah. whose comfort? Yes. And yes. yeah, definitely. And what does that tell someone when they need to switch? You know, I mean, what does that really say? And I think too, I've been thinking a lot about having a child who has Asperger's. I think about, um, it's not the same, but this idea of masking. You know, they have to put on a mask to fit in. And I think that it could be applied, you know, brought more broadly than autism. And it made me think about the code switching and, you know, why do we need to do this as opposed to acceptance and appreciation for differences? So I'm, I'm so excited that you're going to be working on this. I, I know you'll do such amazing things. And then the last question I like to ask is, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? So my favorite book from now is actually a book intended for toddlers (laughs) because it's a book that I got for my nephew who is very interested in it. And I think that it sort of, it actually connects back to what we ended up talking about a bit with this 
sort of like reaction brain and learning, but it's called Little Monkey Calms Down by Michael Dahl. Have you heard of it? No, but I'm, I can already tell I'm going to love it. Yep. So it's a story about a little monkey who drops their ice cream cone and is having a tantrum. And then some loving caretaker goes through this list of options that can maybe help little monkey calm down. And so, you know, my, my nephew is two and at the midst of really big feelings (laughs) and, you know, it doesn't, we can't be like, remember the little monkey said to sing a soft song in the moment, but he's really, really interested in it and requests it often. And sometimes is able to connect back like, oh, I was crying a lot like the little monkey <laughs> when he dropped his ice cream cone. So um, and that's another thing that's really exciting, seeing all of these like social emotional books written for for very young children. It's it's so cool. It's blowing me away. I have a new book called Setting Boundaries that I'm reading to my <laughs> five-year-old. I'm like, I'm teaching my five-year-old. I need to learn those lessons. Right, I mean- right. It's amazing and how great for, for children. And yeah, where would we all be if we had access this, to this kind of learning as we were growing up in the same way? Wow. Did you have one for childhood or is that the one you wanted to mention? For the That's part? the one I wanted to mention. Okay. Yeah. I just wondered because <laughs> I was like, okay, um, it's a hard enough question, but picking one book is enough, right? Not on the spot yeah. to pick two or three. Uh, that's fantastic. I'm actually going to grab that book for my kiddos because as I mentioned, like they're also you know, to- it starts in toddlerhood and it just pretty, pretty much continues on. So that's great. I often get the books that guests will mention for my own kids <laughs> selfishly <and> learn <laughs> from them. So that sounds like a really cool book. Well, the- while we're at it, then actually there is one more oh, and yes. it's similar, oh. as you can tell, I'm the auntie that shows up and buys 20 books when I notice a need, oh, but there's gosh. in that same vein, there's one called alpha breaths. And it's like an ABC book about different kinds of breathing. So there's ones about like giving yourself a hug while you breathe. And again, my nephew is like pretty interested in flipping through and then getting all the adults to do the different types of breathing. So again, not that it's, he's able to apply it yet, but just the interest in it is, is pretty cool. So that's another one. I think I have heard of, I'm flashing back, I think my five-year-old might've mentioned that at dinner one time and I, I needed mm. to look it up. So now you're reminding me, yeah, that's so cool to have those, those strategies, those ways to compensate. Um, speaking of children, that's my cue. So uh, thank you so much Indigo for spending your time with me. I'm glad we could do a longer version. So I'll definitely encourage listeners to have a, you know, have a listen to episode nine and then follow it up with this episode or listen to this episode and follow up with episode nine uh, because we do you know, ha- talk about different things in each episode. I'm so excited that we could chat today. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you, Tiffany. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time. You're my first person to have again. Um, but I have to tell you, even when we did episode nine, I was like, we have to do this again. Cause remember it was short, like I had technical mm-hmm. problems and you had to run to the clinic. So mm-hmm. it has been 
three years now that I've wanted to follow up. I can't believe that it's been, that it was 2019. 